I still remember the first time someone asked me to mentor them. It was the ripe age of 26. But this was a young person that I had known. It was while I was working on a church staff in Atlanta and going to seminary. And the person who asked me to serve as a mentor had been a member of our college program. And he had graduated and received a job in Atlanta and said that as he was transitioning from being a student to in the workforce, he wondered if I'd meet with him regularly and uh, just help as he discerned the path forward. It felt a little weird at age 26 to be asked to mentor somebody, but then I kind of reflected. It's like, well, I'm in seminary, which means I know a lot about this stuff, and I'm kind of holy and spiritual. Uh, besides, I add on that my natural wit and charm, and I, you know, I felt like I was, in the end, a pretty good candidate to serve as a mentor to this guy. His name was Scott, and we arranged for our first meeting to be over lunch, and I didn't just want to rely on my natural gifts, and so I did some preparing for that first lunch, and I had four questions that I asked him for us to dive into this relationship. I said, first off, tell me a little bit about your family and growing up. Second, tell me uh, when faith became real to you. When, when did uh, your following Jesus become something you had claimed in your life? Third, how do you understand God's calling upon your life right now, and how do you figure that out? And last and fourth, what sin is alive in your life that we can be aware of and, and, and praying for? We talked through each of these things, and as we got to the end, and I thought lunch was coming to a close, Scott looked at me and said, well, what about you? I said, well, what do you mean, what about me? He said, well, some of these I know from your teaching that I've heard you do, but like that last one, like what sin is alive in your life and what are you struggling with? Like, what is that for you? I said, no, you don't understand. I'm mentoring you. I'm the one asking the questions. You're the one giving the answers. This is about your formation. This is about your growth. Someone needs to give you the job description of what a mentor and a mentee is. And then he said, so you're saying you don't need to grow anymore? It was a great question that he asked me. And as we continue in this series through the book of Ephesians that we've entitled United, looking for what Paul gives us are the things that unite us together as people of faith. What he's writing about here in chapter four is exactly what Scott was asking. What he says is one thing that unites us is that none of us, not one of us worshiping today, no matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been in church, no matter how many Bible studies we've attended, no matter uh, how many scripture passages we've memorized, no matter how many mission trips we've gone on, none of us is a perfected, finished product. All of us are united by the understanding that we have room and need to grow. And the amazing thing that the New Testament teaches us, and Paul's talking about here, is that we can grow. We can change. The message of our faith is one that we can be transformed, that this is possible, that we can grow, as he writes here, into the likeness of Christ, and that as we do so, we can become more alive. We can change the patterns in our life. We can have more joy. We can live more fully. And we actually have more control over that than many of us assume. What he writes here is that one of the things, no matter who you are or how you're wired, that one of the things that is important and critical for us to remember is that growth and transformation, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more alive with more purpose in our daily living, happens when we live in community. 
Community where we're committed, as he writes here, to speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is how we grow more and more into the head of our body who is Christ, he writes. This is not what churches are often known for. This is countercultural in our world today, but this is also countercultural for churches. I mean, we don't know where it is in the Bible, but church culture seems pretty convinced that somewhere in there, the way that you are church community is that when you get together, you smile a lot, you're very, very polite, you have your elevator speeches prepared of what's going on in your day, and, and while smiling, what's going on in the life of your children, and then listening to the other people who share the same thing. And then we get in our cars and we talk about people behind their back can be a very passive-aggressive place. We're not known as, as a spot where people are committed to speaking the truth in love. And so what I want us to do today is understand how critically important this is and how every generation of Christians has to claim this truth, that if we want to grow, we need to be forging these kinds of pockets of community and understanding that that is the essence of church. So I want to break this phrase down for us. What does it mean to say that we're committed to building communities where we speak the truth in love? Well, the first thing that we're committed to is that we need to be committed to being communities of love. And you might be sitting there going, well, that's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with speaking truth in love. But what you understand in the language is that while he does begin with the word truth, it's against a backdrop that is already assumed of love. One of the ways churches injure people and one of the ways we're injured in society right now is because there's a lot of what we see as speaking truth, but people don't know that it's from a backdrop of love. You can't create that once you start speaking the truth. The backdrop of love has to be there first. So we've said before, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And if we are just speaking the truth without people knowing that it comes from a place of genuine love, of service, of, then we're probably not impacting the change we think we are, no matter how much wisdom we have to dispense. We're seeing this in our culture. We're seeing this in our world right now. We're seeing the, the, the uh, fallout of a lack of love being spoken and an insistence upon truth. A member of our church sent me a, a fascinating study recently. It was by a group called Beyond Conflict. This is an international organization. It's not a faith-based organization, but one of the studies that they did was looking at the increased polarization in politics and in culture in the United States of America. What they did is they took a group of registered Democrats and a group of registered Republicans, and they asked them to rate themselves and the other party on a scale of zero to 100. We're going to jump to the end for the sake of time. But what uh, this group found out is as follows. It said, Republicans and Democrats believe that members of the other party dislike them more than twice as much as they actually do. Specifically, Republicans estimate that Democrats rate them at a score of 28 out of 100. In reality, Democrats rated them at an 83. Similarly, Democrats estimate that Republicans rate them at 48 out of 100. In reality, Republicans rated them at an 80. What this study is showing us is that there is a breakdown in how people actually think of us and our perception of how they think of us. 
that one side thinks far more highly of the other and both sides think more highly of the other, but the groups that are uh, on the other side of the aisle, one from another, feel greatly disliked, feel greatly disrespected. In the words of this study, feel dehumanized. Now, what difference does that make? The study goes on. The more we feel disliked and dehumanized by members of the other party, the more likely we are to express greater dislike and dehumanization toward them. In this way, the divide between actual and perceived dislike and dehumanization can create a downward spiral of hostility that fuels further toxic polarization. See, what this is saying is, is that when we point and go, yeah, but you've got to see the article that they posted about the way that we vote, and then that makes me feel justified at posting what I did. It's this spiral that we got to get into, and somewhere at the core, we need to be able to look at one another and say, I may not agree with your policies, but you as a person are more important than the policies you represent. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Paul's saying that we've got to be a community that speaks truth, but it's a community that speaks truth only against an established bedrock built upon a foundation of love. And the word he uses here for love is agape, meaning that we are to be a community that loves by serving one another, by looking out for the needs of one another. The church should be a place that our growth can happen because we trust that the people we're doing life with desire for us to flourish, want the best for us. That's how we have to understand community. Do you have people that you're walking with? Do you have people that you're serving? Do you have people that you believe are serving you? This is what Paul's saying the backdrop has to be for the kind of community that churches where we can grow and change and experience life more fully. Of course, we have to be communities of faith uh, that are communities committed to love, but we also are communities of truth. And in a postmodern age, this is really important to say that we need to be communities committed to truth, to speaking truth in love. And truth in a postmodern world can be difficult to find because everything might be relative. But it's still something that we need to be committed to naming, hearing, searching for. One of my favorite books, when talking about the possibility of the importance of seeking truth and speaking truth, one of my favorite books of all time, but certainly one of my favorite books on leadership is by Doris Kearns Goodwin, where she talks about uh, Abraham Lincoln, the title is Team of Rivals. What, what she writes about in here that's fascinating is that when Lincoln was elected president, he formed his cabinet out of the other members who had been running for the Republican nomination for president. He took his political rivals and placed them in his cabinet. And the basic reason for that is he knew that he would be a better president if he had people surrounding him that would challenge him, that were smart. I remember talking to my father about this after I had read the book, and my dad summed it up in a great way. And I think about this in my own life, and I think about this in my own ministry. My father said, great leaders don't insist on surrounding themselves by yes people. They don't primarily demand loyalty out of everyone around them. Great leaders aren't just concerned with people having their backs. They also want in their close circle someone to get in their face. Great leaders aren't, aren't concerned with only having people who have their back. They also want some people to get in their face, to speak truth. This is what Lincoln was going after. and This is what we have to be going after as well. 
And yes, that might mean that like Scott did with me at that lunch, that it's about speaking a hard truth to someone. It might be more about speaking truth to them when they're feeling down, when they're feeling blue, when they're feeling ignored, when they're feeling that their hopes and dreams are washing away, of reminding them and speaking truth of God's love for them, of God's place in their life. What I also think it means for people of faith, and when we think about the nature of community, is it's as much about honesty as anyone else. Can we be communities that are committed to honesty? So that for our own growth, when we have people who ask us, how are you doing? We can actually answer that truthfully. I don't know about you, but I've gotten pretty good in this time of a pandemic of kind of going, well, you know, it could be worse and there's opportunities that are before us and we're learning things and everything else. And all of that is true. But here's the other truth. This is a time where life is just really, really, really hard in a lot of ways. Can you tell the truth? Do you have people in your life that you know love you enough that when they say, how can we pray for you? Or how can we pray for your marriage? Or how can we pray for your friendships? Or how can we pray for what's going on in your heart in this time that you can tell the truth to them? Knowing that they love you enough to try to serve you, walk with you, pray for you in that time. Do you have people where you can speak the truth and be honest with one another? This is what church must be. So first, to understand what Paul says, we have to be communities of love. Second, we have to be communities of truth. But finally, we just have to do it. This is the amazing opportunity before us right now at Covenant. This is the amazing opportunity that is before each and every one of us who's a part of this church, who's a part of this community, who's a part of this worshiping life. One of the worries that I have had as a pastor at a church like Covenant, especially at a big church and a church that's been growing the way that we have in recent years, is that it's easy for people just to kind of come in and go out and never to be known. So a phrase that we've used in recent years is saying that you need to be part of a community, not just a crowd. It's easy at a church like Covenant to just be part of the crowd, but the question that we've been going for is what does it mean to be part of the community rather than just the crowd? Well, here's the thing, friends. The opportunity before us is the crowd's not an option anymore. Yes, there's an online crowd that we are a part of, and that is real. But in terms of gathering on campus in large numbers, children, students, older adults, uh, packed in in worship uh, with freedom and just like no encumbrance, we are a long, long way from that. We're not going to go from where we are now just to that. But that doesn't mean that the opportunities for change and transformation aren't real, that what we can still do is to be community together. We can start gathering online and on campus and in each other's homes. You might be hearing this and saying, you know, this is what we need to be doing, that, that I have a place where a, a small group, a mentoring relationship, a Bible study that gathers together where I am known, where we speak the truth and love to each other. And as summer starts moving towards an end and fall and whatever that's going to look like is coming around the corner, this is the time to recommit, to get on each other's calendars, to get on each other's schedules, to say that the work of being transformed, of becoming more fully alive is not something I'm ready to surrender and I don't have to go and be a part of a crowd for that. That community is where that happens. And so we need to, to be making that happen. And if you're sitting there going, I'm not certain that I have that, or I'm not certain even what that means, or I'm not certain what that would look like in my life, you should know that, that our church has done a fundamental pivot as we start looking to the fall. 
for our staff and our committees and our elders and our deacons to start working more and more on how can these pockets of community take place and what can that look like? And as we go into August, having very clear on-ramps for each and every one of you to take part, to participate, to become alive in this type of environment. Friends, this is who we are. This is where we're headed. This is what we're going to do to get there. The opportunities have not stopped. For every child, for every student, for every couple, for every adult of any age or stage of life, have an opportunity to be with people where together we speak the truth in love so that we can grow and come more fully alive. We look forward to the journey ahead with you. Amen.